so we're going to move into a study now of the book of Daniel. Uh, incredible, incredible book uh, for so many different reasons. And it's so uh, applicable to the days in which we live. So let's uh, just go through. Let's bow our hearts and just ask the Lord to bless this study as we go through it together. So Father, we just come before you now. Father, we ask that you give us understanding. We give us spiritual eyesight. Lord, to be able to see and perceive and understand the things that you would have us learn from this study. Father, help us to learn, as Daniel learned, to be obedient, to be faithful in the midst of trials and circumstances that were not of his choosing. And Lord, so often we find ourselves in situations that are not of our choosing. But Lord, help us to have that same resilience, that same love for you, Lord, that is greater than the things of this world. Father, you tell us that we should not love the world or the things in it. And we thank you, Lord, that we have examples like Daniel, whose faith we can follow. So, Father, we just commit this whole study, Lord, however many weeks we journey through this book, Father, we just pray that you would speak to our hearts and, Lord, encourage us and edify us and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the book of Daniel. What we're going to do this morning is have a, an introduction to this whole study. We won't get into chapter one because uh, there's a lot of things that I think are important to go through just to get the real outline, the flavor of what we're going to be looking at. So this morning, we'll just do a brief introduction to what we're going to look at, but then an overview of the book of Daniel itself. I want to just talk briefly about the chronology of the book, because as you read through, it's not all uh, just start at page one and get to the end of the book, as it were. Uh, you need to understand where things fit. It just helps us as we read through. Uh, then I want to give you the underlying themes of the book, which really I've uh, labelled as preeminence, purpose, purity and prophecy. I'll explain what those mean in a moment. Uh, a few facts about the book, just some interesting stats and numbers uh, as we get ready to go into this. Uh, and then I want to spend a little bit of time going through the historical background of the book of Daniel so that we understand the times in which Daniel was living. And then just concluding by answering some of the objections of the critics. Now, we'll actually hear a lot of this as we go through Daniel, because it's a book that the critics have loved to attack. They hate the fact that Daniel exists. Uh, this book has been preserved uh, because it tells us so many wonderful truths that have been verified and historical statements that have proven to be so. And so the critics don't like it because it's great authentication of God's word. Uh, but we'll just touch on a few of those things this morning. But let's jump in uh, with an introduction. Well, Daniel contains obviously some of the best love stories in the Bible. And I'm sure you're all familiar. We've grown up with stories of Daniel in the lion's den, for example, and the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and them being thrown into the fiery furnace and all these kind of things. So, uh, you know, things that we've grown up with in Sunday school, probably for many of us, if we've grown up in a church environment. But you know, even for those that grew up not in a church environment, I'm sure you're familiar with these accounts. In fact, many uh, phrases and words in our language, even today, uh, actually derive from things in the book of Daniel. Um, and it's interesting how so much of our vernacular has come from scripture. 
But sadly for many, these are just quaint stories. That's how many, even Christians, tend to view the things of the book of Daniel. They don't appreciate the depth that is here. And yet there is compelling evidence for the historical integrity of this record. These weren't just stories. In fact, I don't particularly like the phrase Bible stories. Of course, I understand why, you know, we we have that title. But they're not stories. They're accounts. They are historical uh, records of things that actually took place. Uh, and when we teach our children, we need to make sure they understand the difference between stories that we read about uh, fictional characters uh, and the accounts that we read in the Bible. They are very different. These aren't just fables. They aren't just little anecdotes to get a point across. These are truths recorded in God's word for our learning. The Bible is a book of history and Daniel is a book of history. But Daniel is also a book of prophecy, and we'll see that as we go through. And some of the most incredible prophecies in the Bible are contained in these 12 chapters. In fact, in chapter 11, we've actually got 135 fulfilled prophecies in just 34 verses. The critics hate it. But it is there. It's a matter of history. You can't deny the fact that Daniel wrote these things, that they are a matter of record before the events that he was prophesying. Uh, And we, of course, have the history now to verify that what Daniel recorded for us did indeed come to pass. So we'll look at that when we get there to chapter 11. Uh, But Daniel is more than just a book of history and just a book of prophecy. It is very much those But it's also a book that speaks about our relationship with God. It speaks about the faithfulness that Daniel showed in the face of adversity, the faithfulness of a man who had been brought up in a seemingly a God-fearing, God-loving home and yet ripped away from all of those things and yet never gave up on God, never forgot about God, never doubted or questioned God. So we see a lot that comes through this that really challenges us in regard to our own walk with the Lord as well. Daniel and his friends' parents seemingly feared God uh, and they gave their boys God-honoring names. Daniel, the name there, means God is my judge. A great name straight off the bat. Um, But we're familiar, of course, with the other three friends. And you'll find me make the point more than once uh, that we shouldn't be using the names that you've kind of grown up in Sunday school and elsewhere hearing of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, because those names were all given to these individuals to deify or to glorify the gods of the Babylonians. Um, So we should be using their proper Hebrew Jewish names because those names actually glorify God. So if you've learned about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, undo that and then relearn their real names, which are Hananiah, who means beloved of the Lord, Mishael, who means who is as God, and then Azariah, which means the Lord is my help. I mean, you can see from those names that clearly there was intent. You know, often today names are chosen for children because they're popular, they're cultural, whatever. Uh, For the Jews, uh, for these individuals, their names were chosen at that time because they conveyed meaning. Uh, And so clearly you see from the meaning that there was some real godly input into the lives of these young men. Now, in fulfillment of the prophetic warning uh, that God had given through Isaiah, these young men were literally torn away from their families and homeland and taken to, if you will, the university of Babylon. 
Now, of course, there are a number of parallels that we can draw from this, looking at the way young people today are just torn away from their families and sent to university. And I'm not decrying the opportunity to have a higher education. There's, of course, a great reason and a purpose for many in doing so. Uh, but for many others, uh, university can be a very dangerous place where people are suddenly confronted with what we would refer to as freedom, um, but can be anything other than that. Uh, and they are exposed to all sorts of ungodly and unhelpful influences in their lives. Well, that's the situation for these young men. Uh, they were taken away. They were put in a position where they were given effectively the best of Babylon. They can have pretty much whatever they wanted. Uh, they were given opportunity for wealth and prosperity and everything else, but they stay true to God. And they're a great lesson for our young people today, but also a great lesson for us in the midst of our uh, lives, whatever challenges, situations we find ourselves in, that they stay true to God throughout. But I just want to just jump back to the book of Isaiah. Uh, now, this is a prophecy uh, that Isaiah gives to Hezekiah around about 100 years before these events take place. So this was around 700 BC. And we read that this is the point after Hezekiah had had his illness and he'd been healed another 15 years added to his life. Uh, and we read in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 1, At that time, uh, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that he'd been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things. Well, that's okay, because he showed him his own house, his own property and what he'd got, and the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor. Well, that starts to become a bit more of an issue because now he's exposing uh, the armor and the, the defense of the nation. And all that was found in his treasures, there was nothing in his house, nor in all his domain, that Hezekiah showed them not. And the problem was that not just did he show them his own house uh, and his own wealth and that which he'd acquired, but he also showed them all that God had provided in the temple and the treasures in the temple. And then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said thou? What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, oh, they have come from a far country unto me. You know, trying to answer the question in a way that, you know, well, I've not done anything wrong. And, uh, of course, Hezekiah is uh, on the back foot straight away. Oh, they've come from a far country, even from Babylon. Oh, it's such a long way away. It's not a problem. And then he said, what have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, all that is in my house have they seen. And there is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then said Hezekiah, sorry, Isaiah to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and all that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And there you have here, Isaiah 39, verse 7, a prophecy that at some point in the future, Babylon is going to come and take away from Israel the choicest of the young men. And it speaks specifically of the royal family. Okay, now this is really interesting because this is an of thy sons. So this is descendants of Hezekiah, people that are blood relatives of him, are going to be taken away and they're going to be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
Now, if we jump forward to two kings, so in uh, chronologically, we jump forward to the time of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so this is 100 years later from that point we read. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem. And the city was besieged. Now, we'll look at the background of this in a minute and why Nebuchadnezzar did this. But we read that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes, notice, and his officers and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. So another reference here to the princes, these young men of the royal household. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold, which King Solomon of Israel had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes. Now, there you have it again. And all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remain save the poorest sort of the people of the land. So when Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Israel, up against Jerusalem, he takes the best of the best, all the, the good men, the valiant men, and the royal household, those young men. And this is why we believe that Daniel himself was indeed part of that royal household. Uh, and he was taken away. And as, as we will find out as we get into chapter one, he was made a eunuch um, in the house of Nebuchadnezzar uh, back in Babylon. Now, Daniel and his friends, they were just teenagers when they were deported to Babylon in 606 BC. Uh, imagine that. I mean, probably around about 14 years of age, Daniel was taken away from his homeland. Can you imagine a young 14-year-old boy suddenly being ripped away from his family, from everything he'd known up until that point? You know, thinking that everything was going to be fine. Of course, the, the mindset in Jerusalem at that time was that, well, nobody will touch us because we are, uh, we are Israel. We are God's chosen. And Jerusalem is the, the place where God has placed his kings. And there was this arrogance believing that everything would be okay. Now, no doubt those kind of ideas had come across Daniel's ears. Now, not to say that Daniel had believed them, but nevertheless, that was that mindset that they were safe because they were Jews and they were in Jerusalem. And suddenly... They are taken away. Imagine the the challenge uh, to that young mind as he's suddenly removed from everything he'd known and loved. Now, Daniel spends his entire life then in Babylon. Interestingly enough, Josephus records that towards the end of his days, he actually met King Cyrus. Now, Cyrus is the king that takes over after the Babylonian rule. Uh, Cyrus was from the Medo-Persian Empire. And so this is now at the end of Daniel's days. Josephus records that Cyrus met Daniel at the gates of Babylon in 539 BC, as the Medo-Persian Empire effectively comes in at night without a battle. We'll read about that. We'll look at the details as we go through. Um, and uh, we know that Daniel served under King Darius the Mede, uh, who'd actually reigned in the province of Babylon under King Cyrus, and that Daniel ministered under four kings. And he lived to see the Jews return to their land at the end of their captivity now it's important to note that this wasn't just some random occurrence it was some foreign power uh, exerting their muscle and might this was the lord who had allowed this specifically uh, we'll look more in coming weeks at the details as to why uh, but god had allowed israel to be taken out of their land for a period of 70 years 
So all of this was the Lord's doing uh, in fulfillment of the promises and the, the prophecies that have been given regarding if they'd walked with him, there would be blessing. And uh, if they didn't, they would be uh, cursing and judgment upon them. So we find that Daniel's ministry itself lasted for over 70 years. And we see Daniel's ministry stretch into his late 80s. Uh, saw him serve as prime minister under two successive world empires. And that's a feat, I think, pretty much unparalleled in history. I don't know of any other individual who has served under pri as a prime minister, effectively, under two totally different and successive world empires. And Daniel had this incredible position that God raised him up for such a time as this. But as Daniel records at the end of chapter one, it was God alone who had lifted him up. His is the power, the glory, the might and dominion. He alone rules in the kingdoms of men. And that's going to be the statement that we're going to see as we go through this study. And it's going to be that recurring theme that God is in complete control of all things. And the days in which we live, though they seem topsy-turvy, and though we've gone through this pandemic and still seem to be not quite out of it yet, um, God is still in complete control. And all the things that are happening on the world stage are all in accord with God's plan and God's will. Now, Daniel is called beloved uh, on at least three occasions uh, in the book. And it's interesting because that same title is actually given to the Apostle John in the New Testament. Now, why is it interesting? Why is it significant? Well, it's because both Daniel and John were given revelations of the climax of world events. They're given visions of what is going to take place at the end of this age and the ushering in of a new age, the millennial reign of Christ. And so both Daniel and John are interesting characters that they're given this insight uh, that God reserves these um, visions for those whom he refers to as his beloved. Now, it's also interesting because the church in Romans 9.25 is also referred to as God's beloved. And of course, God has revealed these things to us also. And you realize what privileged company we are in as the church, that we are given access to these revelations, that we can understand the days in which we live. In fact, Jesus made it very clear through his ministry that we are to know, that we are to understand, that we're to be looking for his return and understand the events and the signs of the times that will lead up to his return. Well, if we think of Daniel's career, Daniel was destined to rise to prominence in the Babylonian Empire and then rise to prominence in the subsequent Persian Empire. Personally receiving the most astonishing prophecies in the entire Bible and certainly uh, Daniel chapter 9 through 12. We'll look at some of those prophecies when we get there. But even chapter 2, chapter 7. The prophecies that Daniel uh, is granted or the, the revelations that he records for us just quite staggering. Uh, of course, Daniel is authenticated by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, verse 15. And in, in Ezekiel, uh, Daniel is classed as being one of just a few that are righteous, uh, along with Noah and with Job. I mean, that puts Daniel in pretty elite company. Now, in the book of Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. I would encourage you 
to think about Daniel in just such a light. You may not think that Daniel has rule over you in that sense, uh, but he does because he's been given this privilege of having his words recorded in God's word. They are, of course, God's word through Daniel that we've been given. Uh, and they're there for our admonition, for our learning, and so on. Uh, and we're told that of these people, we should follow after their faith. We should follow their example. And Daniel is a great example to follow after. In fact, Daniel is one of only a few people in the Bible of whom no sin is recorded. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't sinful. Of course, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God and needs a savior. Uh, but Daniel, there is no sin recorded. Joseph is another character. In that way, he becomes a type of Christ as well. But Daniel is a great example of someone that we should follow that example in the way that he lived his life and so on. <clears throat> a man went up to a Christian once and asked, you're a Christian, aren't you? And the Christian replied, well, that's for you to tell me. I love that. It's such a simple response. But, you know, actually, if somebody comes up to you and asks you if you're a Christian, really, the, the question should already be answered. They should be able to see in your life that you are a Christian. It should be obvious to all around you, the way you conduct yourself, the things you say, the things you do, the company you keep, the things that you allow into your life. They should all tell that your great and first love is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, but too many Christians, it's been said before, act as secret agents, uh, never wanting to blow their cover. Daniel though hadn't been in Babylon for five minutes before they could tell what was the most important thing in his life. You know, Daniel clearly loved God. And that is very evident as we go through even the very first chapter of this book. Okay, so if we have a, a quick overview of the book of Daniel itself, uh, it's interesting that the time span is phenomenal because the book of Daniel records the collapse of the nation of Israel. So starting really about 606 BC and the beginning of something that is referred to as the times of the Gentiles. Now, it's a period of time that's going to last from that point when Gentile rule took over uh, and the, the Jews then lost that uh, that right and that entitlement to, to effectively govern and manage themselves without having a Gentile power uh, watching over them. So from that point, right up until the time that the Messiah will return and formally put an end to the times of the Gentiles. Uh, so you see this kind of period of history. Uh, it's interesting, you know, you look at the book of Genesis. Genesis covers such a long period of history. And uh, we've got uh, all this whole section uh, across there, you can see. Um, oops, let's go back there. Um you know, and Daniel uh, coming then after the nation, we've got the kings. We'll talk about the kings in a moment. And at the end of this period of the kings, the monarchy in Israel uh, effectively comes to an end. The crown is taken away from Israel with Zedekiah, uh, the last king of Israel, and effectively taken to Babylon. It's interesting, we've mentioned this before, that the kings, the Magi, and we'll talk about this later because Daniel becomes the chief of the Magi. Um, and he becomes uh, something very significant in that respect because clearly he reveals to this uh, what was a, a, a Persian uh, religious order. Uh, he reveals to them the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah that he himself has given. And uh, it's interesting that some... Uh, Five, six hundred years after this point, that the Magi travel to Bethlehem 
or they travel to, uh, to Jerusalem originally. Uh, they think they're going to go to Bethlehem because that's where Herod sends them. But actually, they don't go to Bethlehem. They end up going to Nazareth where this young child, Jesus, was growing up to come and bring the crown back. Uh, if you remember, Israel had been told that they would abide many days without a king. And that's indeed what happened. Of course, that royal line carried on and it's recorded uh, in Matthew's gospel, the royal line that came down to Jesus Christ. And Jesus was the rightful king of the Jews. That's why Herod was so concerned when the Magi arrived, asking uh, where the king of the Jews was. So this is the, the time span. And of course, Daniel's prophecies cover from that point of the exile all the way up to the end of this age and then into eternity. Interestingly, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 15, we read Peter, Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and to disagree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, after what? After God has taken out a people for his own name from the Gentiles. After that, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. So God making it really clear here that God has a plan and a purpose for the nation of Israel. Sadly, we live in a country where the prevailing view is what we refer to as replacement theology. The idea that God has finished with Israel. There's nothing can be further from the truth. There is so much in scripture to show that God has not finished with the nation of Israel. He has a plan and a purpose for them. If we look at the organization, the uh, first group of uh, chapters chapters one to six and we find that uh chapter one is actually written in hebrew uh, but then the, the the theme changes and it goes to aramaic from there daniel of course deported as a teenager in chapter one um nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two and then as a result of this incredible dream nebuchadnezzar seems kind of void up and he goes and builds this incredible statue that he wants everybody to worship and chapter three deals with that and of course daniel's friends are thrown into the fiery furnace. Interesting question we'll ask when we get to chapter 3 is, where was Daniel throughout that whole incident? Silly, he's not in the, on the scene. Um, Nebuchadnezzar then, uh, because of his pride, ends up being humbled by God. Uh, very interesting chapter. And we actually have uh, the only portion of the, the Bible written by a Gentile king. Uh, Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually... Uh, records uh, his experience and we have his words in scripture uh, then we get to the fall of babylon so after nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar's son's son so his grandson ends up on the throne um, but uh, is given over to idolatry and everything else and under his uh, watch babylon falls to the medes and the persians and then shortly after that, we get to the lion's den incident. As I said, that whole section is written in Aramaic. So the Bible written in effectively two languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. But this small section is written in Aramaic. It's the only kind of exception to that uh, we find. Um, but just to mention, no, we'll talk again in chapter six when we get there. We all tend to think of Daniel as this young, fit uh, man thrown into the lions and sat there. Daniel would have been very old, uh, in his, probably in his 70s or so at the time of the lion's den incident, uh, which kind of changes our perception a little bit as we think about those things. And then we get into the, the second section of the book, Daniel's vision, which is also again written in uh, Aramaic, which we'll look at the details of that. It's really paralleling the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. 
uh, and then we go through uh, in chapter 7 through 12, chapter 7, the four beasts are seen, uh, the ram and the he-goat, speaking of the kingdom of Greece that was coming. Chapter 9, the incredible 70-week prophecy. And we've alluded to it many times. We'll go into it in depth and uh, enjoy the incredible prophecy uh, that really just is undeniable proof that the Bible is the Word of God. A prophecy given some four centuries before the fulfillment, and it was fulfilled to the very day. Uh, prophesying and promising the very day that the Messiah would come and present himself to Israel. Then we get what we can refer to as a glimpse of the dark side. We see behind the, the spiritual curtain of things, as it were, uh, in the heavenly realms. And then we get an interesting section because it's often referred to by critics uh, and sometimes even Bible commentators as the silent years. Um, but actually, this period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a 400-year period. And yet we find that those silent years are actually not silent at all because they're recorded in advance in the book of Daniel. And this is where we find that incredible uh, number of prophecies in just a few verses. And then chapter 12 really deals with the consummation of all things as the Lord wraps everything up. And the last uh, five chapters there you can see are all back written in Hebrew again. Seemingly, the, the Gentile portion of the book is in Aramaic, uh, the Jewish portion of the book very much in Hebrew. Um, some scholars have made a bigger thing of that. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. I'll leave you to think. So let's go on and just talk briefly about the chronology of the book itself. Well, the book, of course, opens in chapter one, Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then the image and so on, and then Nebuchadnezzar's uh, pride. Uh, then, from a, a chronological point of view, chapter 7 will be the next chapter uh, that fits, where we have the vision of the four beasts that Daniel himself receives, uh, which leads on to chapter 8, the, the ram, the he-goat, which again is that um, prophecy of the kingdom of Greece and Alexander the Great and so on. Then we jump back to where Babylon falls to the Persians, chapter 5, chapter 6, then the lion's den. And then we get the 70 weeks vision, uh, this we mentioned a moment ago. Uh, and then we have the closing visions, chapters 10 through 12. So chronologically, that's how the book lays out. We'll talk about the chronology a few times as we go through, because there's some interesting observations that we can make as we go through when we understand quite how it all fits together. But it might be helpful if you're reading it through, just to understand that's how, uh, from a uh, start to finish, as it were, things kind of pan out. Now, I mentioned that a subtitle to the, the book could be Preeminence, Prophecy, Purity. Uh, sorry, Preeminence, Purpose, Purity and Prophecy. Uh, and these really are the underlying themes of the book. Preeminence, why? Well, because throughout the book, it's clearly presented that the Lord reigns. Purpose, well, we see that Daniel purposed in his heart. And we'll look at that. We see Daniel's purpose in life. And then this purposing in his heart or deciding in his heart which way his life was going to go. Uh, so it's in that sense we're speaking of purpose. Uh, purity. Well, we see with Daniel that the decision is made before the choice is presented. That is such an important thing for us to understand. For each one of us, we need to make the decision before the choice is there. Now, that may seem a little strange, but if we don't think things through, if we don't make our decisions as to who we're going to follow when challenges and situations present themselves, we'll often end up choosing things that are not good or helpful to us. Daniel was absolutely 
firm in his heart and his mind, his, his purpose of life and heart, and that these decisions were clearly made in advance. He wasn't going to allow anything to pull him away from his walk with God. And so we see this purity in his life. Prophecy, well, Job 24 verse 1 makes an interesting statement or question. It says, why do those that know him not see his days? It's an interesting question. You know, the majority of the church, I would argue, is largely oblivious to prophecy. So that which the scripture has revealed is going to happen. And why does scripture reveal things for us? Well, we're told that it's as a, a light that shines brighter unto the perfect day. In other words, it's like a light that leads us home. It warns us of the dangers that are coming and gives us a clear path to follow. Now, just going back to looking at each of these in a little bit more depth. Preeminence, of course, because the book shows time and again that it is God who rules in the kingdoms of man. Now, this should be a great encouragement to you and I. We're told in Scripture that it is he who ordains the steps of a good man. Indeed, we're told in Proverbs 20, 24, that man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Well, the good thing is God understands, and if we follow God, we will be on the right path. And of course, this we see was the basis of Daniel's life. It was a confident assurance that whatever happened on the outside, however desperate things seemed to be, God was still on the throne. God is preeminent. God is in control. God rules in the kingdoms of man. And we need to keep that before us. The fact that Daniel knew and understood this, I am sure, made such a big impact on the way he and his friends lived their lives. Purpose. Well, two parts to this, really. Um, firstly, because the book underlines the fact that God has a purpose for all that happens in our lives. Very much our verse of the week this week, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. We know the scripture so well. And as Daniel and his friends show, you know, who'd have thought that these teenagers who were dragged away in shackles would be the ones to bring the most powerful of nations to its knees. But that's exactly what they do. And again, that verse we've mentioned. Paul reminds us that we know that all things, that's the bit sometimes we stick at, isn't it? We're we, we, we quite happy to accept that some things work together for good, but are we happy to accept that all things work together for good? Well, Daniel and his friends clearly show that God was in complete control, that God has a purpose for all that happens in our lives, if we are saved, if we are his. Secondly, well, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. But, you know, no one was watching. Nobody would have known. He and his friends could have pretty much lived it up and lived however they wanted to. But Daniel knew that God knew. It's just like Joseph, really, in Egypt, that situation with Mrs. Potiphar as she tries to seduce Joseph. You know, on the surface, you think, well, you know, nobody would have seen Daniel. Uh, Joseph could have got away with that. But of course, Joseph knew that God saw. Joseph knew that it did matter. Even though as a result of that situation, Joseph ends up imprisoned, we realize that it was through that imprisonment that he got to meet the butler. And that because of the butler, he ends up being brought before Pharaoh. And because of that and the dream that Pharaoh had, Joseph becomes 
the most important and powerful man in the land of Egypt, saving not only himself, but his family. And of course, we see that God used that situation. The line that came down from Eve, the seed of the woman, all the way down to the Messiah, comes through that family. And Joseph was pivotal to that whole situation. You know, you realize that God's whole plan of redemption hinged on a decision that Joseph made when faced with temptation. You know, often we're faced with temptation and we think, well, it doesn't matter. Nobody will see. But clearly, Joseph is a great example. And Daniel here is another example of just that sort. He purposed in his heart. You know, so much of what follows in Scripture uh, has a, a kind of pivots on the things that we read in the book of Daniel and Daniel's faithfulness and so on. Even to the extent, as we mentioned earlier, that the Magi end up traveling some 400, 500 years later to acknowledge appoint jesus as the rightful king of the jews every single detail is there by deliberate design and of course in this context the purpose referred to is a determined conscious decision that is made in the heart daniel's treasure was to do the will of god regardless of what others thought or said the third one on this list of uh, uh, themes that we find in the book is purity and Daniel because he said purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself you see because Daniel decided before the event there was a beauty and a simplicity about Daniel he didn't get to a challenge and then have to mull over what he was going to do he'd already decided how he was going to act you know as we said just as it was with Joseph Daniel never gave in and twice in the book of Ezekiel God points to Daniel as an example of what a righteous man should be like. Daniel held loosely to the things of this world, but hold, held tightly to God. And so finally, prophecy. Well, prophecy is one of the undeniable proofs that God has given to show that his word is true. Second Peter 1.19, not that long ago we were looking at that. And Jesus pointed to Daniel's prophecy as the key to understanding end-time events. Uh, yet it is astonishing so many Christians are ignorant regarding the prophecies in the Bible. As we said already, you know, Job, why seeing times are not hidden from your mighty, do they that know him not see his days? The challenge is we should know, we should understand. And this is a great book for us in terms of understanding how things fit together and what we can expect in the days, uh, weeks, and if the Lord tarries in the years ahead. Just a couple of uh, trivial facts, just for information purposes. There's 12 chapters in the book. There's 357 verses. There's 11,606 words. 16 questions are asked. There's 218 verses of history. There's 79 verses of fulfilled and 60 verses of unfulfilled prophecy. There's more prophecies than that, but that, those are the verses that contain them. Uh, there's seven commands given. There's four promises given. Six messages from God. Uh, that's from uh, Finney's uh, Dake in his annotated reference Bible. Uh, just a few facts and numbers there. Um, just also interested, it was recorded by Josephus, the Jewish historian, that in 332 BC, uh, Jejuthun, who was a Jewish high priest, met Alexander the Great. Now, this is sometime after the time of Daniel, but he met Alexander the Great at the gates of Jerusalem. This is the Jews back in their land by now, and presented to him a copy of the book of Daniel. And because the book of Daniel details so vividly, so clearly the career and the plan uh, of Alexander the Great and then subsequently what would happen, apparently Alexander was so impressed that he decided to spare the city of Jerusalem. 
Now, it is certainly interesting that Alexander defeated and conquered pretty much every place he set his foot, and yet Jerusalem was one of the places he didn't destroy. He didn't uh, take it over and, and demolish it or anything else. Um, so it just seems to be uh, some weight to that, uh, that record by Josephus. Okay, so let's just go into some of the historical background so we're really set up, ready for chapter 1. Of course, we know in regard to Israel that Saul was the first king, uh, and then David becomes the, the king. God really had always intended to sit on the throne. Saul wasn't of the tribe of uh, Judah, but the king would come from the tribe of Judah. So David is that, that anointed one, the God, one that God chose. Of course, David's son Solomon becomes king. But because of Solomon's apostasy, because he did everything that the Torah said he shouldn't do, he multiplied horses, he multiplied wives, he went down to Egypt and so on. God said he would rend the kingdom from him. And so the kingdom divides to Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, who takes over the area of Judah. And then Jeroboam, who is this other individual who steps onto the scene, who takes over the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. And all this is detailed for us in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles. That division split is around about 931 BC. Uh, so you see there on the screen uh, just the two uh, areas, northern kingdom uh, ruled over by Jeroboam and the southern kingdom. Typically, there's 10 tribes that were in the north. And there was two tribes in the south, just as a rough guy. But actually, the godly from the north came down to the south, and the idolatrous ones in the south went up to the north. So there was a big intermingling of the Jews during this period of time. Now, if we look at the history of the kings of Israel, we go from Jeroboam all the way down. You see constant changes of lineage, all sorts of problems and so on. The longest lineage is as a result of Jehu and his four sons, or sorry, his son, uh, and grandson, great-grandson go on uh, to sit on the throne. But you see, uh, even then, that dynasty comes to an end. And ultimately, you get to Hoshea in 722 BC when the Assyrian Empire come and destroy, take away um, the northern kingdom, take them away captive to Assyria as a result. There's not a good king amongst them, sadly. If we look at the history of the kings of Judah, the ones that are highlighted in green on the screen there were the good kings. Sadly, there's just four good kings in the entire reign of these kings. So from the time of Rehoboam uh, all the way through, it's just one family line, this though, one family, uh, the family of David coming down through Rehoboam and so on. Uh, Asa and Jehoshaphat, good kings, although Asa doesn't end well, but he was a good king. Uh, Jehoash was a good king, certainly. Uh, Hezekiah, we've already mentioned too. Uh, and then we get down to this bottom section there uh, with Josiah. Um, and, and we see there, uh, I'm just going to see, so this whole section at the bottom here, you can see on the screen there, these are the, the kings that are ruling during the time or uh, leading up to the time of Daniel. And particularly these bottom three here, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin and Zedekiah during this period of time from about 606 BC onwards. If we then look at the chronology of what happened leading up to uh, this time of uh, Daniel, in 612 BC, now remember the, the before Christ, the numbers count down. So in 612 BC, Nineveh, the great city that Jonah went to preach to, ends up falling to an alliance of Babylon and Media. So these two nations, neither of them were particularly great or strong at that time, but they combined forces and they attack the Assyrian Empire, and Nineveh falls to them. If we look at this on a map, uh, you see that the Medes and the Babylonians join together 
and they come up against this whole place of Nineveh and they destroy it as a result. And that follows on three years later with Assyria being already somewhat weakened. Pharaoh Necho, who is the king of Egypt, leads an army against Assyria. Now, what's really interesting in all of this, as they come up from Egypt, Josiah, who is the king of Jerusalem, the king of Judah, steps out to fight against Necho. And as a result, he gets killed. It's something that seemingly was ill-advised. God advised him not to do it, but he still goes ahead and does it anyway. So the king Necho of Egypt comes up to this battle at Karshemesh, uh, which is obviously in what we'd refer to uh, or just uh, Syria region today, uh, just below Turkey or southern Turkey. Uh, and this is where that battle takes place. But the strange thing is that um, Josiah, who is king in Jerusalem, comes out en route uh, and there's this battle that takes place, which seemingly there was no need for because Necho wasn't coming to attack Jerusalem. He was coming to attack Assyria. But nevertheless, we read in 2 Chronicles, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple. Now, we don't want to derail the study this morning, but the question, of course, has to be asked, what was he preparing the temple for? Well, it seems that the Ark of the Covenant had been removed from the temple, that Necho, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had the Ark of the Covenant with him and the priests of Israel were carrying it and marching with them. And Necho, and Josiah comes out to challenge Necho to see if he can get this Ark back. And it came up against Karshmesh by the Euphrates and Josiah went out against him. So Necho, as I said, was not coming to fight against Josiah, and yet Josiah still goes out. He's actually fighting Judah's enemy. So there's a clearly a different reason, and it seems to be tied up with the Ark of the Covenant. Now notice what Necho says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, says to Josiah, but he sent ambassadors to him saying, what have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. And notice what he says, for God commanded me to make haste forbear thee from meddling with god who is with me that he destroy thee not now we get this incredible statement that necho is boldly saying that god has given him this instruction to go out and fight against assyria and for some reason as we said i believe it's to do with the ark of the covenant josiah steps out into battle Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearken not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God. Now, that's an interesting line to find in the Bible, isn't it? That God was speaking clearly here through Pharaoh Necho. This was God ordained and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. So that famous valley in the middle of Israel, uh, we refer to Armageddon, but the Megiddo Valley is this huge open expanse. Uh, and the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. Now, as a result, Josiah dies in this battle against Pharaoh Necho. As a result of that, when uh, Necho returns, Jehoaz jo jo uh, becomes the next king, son of Josiah, and he reigns for just three months. But when Necho comes back, probably a little bit uh, disgruntled with the way that uh, Josiah had entered into battle with him, taking up time and resources that he didn't want to expend on a problem that he didn't have a, up until then, 
Uh, as a result, Jehoaz is taken to Egypt by Pharaoh So that then leaves another bit of a power vacuum. And so Jehoiakim, another one of Josiah's sons, then comes and sits on the throne and reigns in Jerusalem for 11 years. Now, while that's going on, in 606 BC, there's now another battle at Karshemesh, that place we saw on the map. We'll look again in a second. And Nebuchadnezzar, this time, comes up against Pharaoh Necho. So Pharaoh now comes back. Again, this is on the west bank of the Euphrates. So we look at the, the, the challenge here. So uh, from Babylon, we have Nebuchadnezzar coming up to Karshemesh. And then we have coming up from Egypt, Pharaoh Necho once again traveling up because Assyria by now have been defeated. Babylon are now making their play for world domination, world power. Egypt, of course, have been strong, but were starting to, to wane. And this battle then takes place again at this place, Karshemesh. As a result of that, um, Pharaoh Necho is defeated and Nebuchadnezzar is victorious. Now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar was not the king of Babylon. He was the, the prince. His father, Nebuchadnezzar, was the king. And so Nebuchadnezzar was away uh, on business, and his son had gone to take this battle, uh, and, of course, he's victorious. Now, on his way back, what we find is that um, uh, Jehoiakim, as I said, was appointed by Pharaoh Necho after he'd taken his brother and reigned for 11 years. But Nebuchadnezzar then comes down to Jerusalem, after this battle at Karshemesh, seemingly wanted to take a few more spoils back for him. He's just been victorious, so all buoyed up because of his victory. Uh, and then in the third year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar comes. And this is where our story really begins in the book of Daniel. So you just get a bit of the history of some of the battles that have gone on. Assyria falls, effectively Egypt now falls. And now, of course, Babylon rises to this position of world dominance in 606 B.C. Now, there's also uh, another individual, uh, Jehoiachin, uh, who a blood curse is placed upon. He becomes king for a short time, uh, and he reigns for just three months, and then he's taken away to Babylon. A very interesting situation, because the curse is recorded in the book of Jeremiah, that because of his disobedience, God says that none of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel. And yet the line comes all the way down to Jesus. It's what's recorded in Matthew's gospel. It creates a bit of an issue. But that's why when you go to Luke's account, Luke's gospel, you have a different genealogy. You haven't got the time to go into it all this morning, but you see that God had already planned for this. Uh, but it's a very interesting situation. Zedekiah then is appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, and he reigns then also for another 11 years until finally in 587 BC, we have the final siege of Jerusalem and Zedekiah is taken away. Incredible prophecy that Zedekiah would not see Babylon, but he'd go there. And you think, well, how will that happen? Well, what happens was very graphically that Zedekiah was captured by Nebuchadnezzar and they got all of his sons lined up before him. They killed all his sons and then they plucked his eyes out and then they took him to Babylon. So then Zedekiah got to go to Babylon. The, the last king of Judah, but he never got to see it because his eyes have been removed. So a very pr precise and, and uh, specific prophecy that was fulfilled in regard to these things. Now, just to give us some sort of clarity on, the, again, this period of time, uh, in 606 BC, that's the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar on Jerusalem. That is when Daniel and his friends are taken captive. 
But as a result of their disobedience back in Jerusalem, their unwillingness to yield to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar comes up a second time in 597 BC. Now that's when Ezekiel is taken and, uh, and a number of other Jews are taken away from the land and taken back to Babylon at that point. And then finally, in 587, when Zedekiah was king, that's when the final siege takes place, uh, the third siege. And that's when uh, that last period of, uh, of time starts ticking. Now, you'll notice there that there's a period of time, a 70 year period referred to as the servitude of the nation. Now, that begins in 606 BC. It was 70 years to the day. We'll look at this later in our study through Daniel. Uh, and it's, it's terminated at 70 years by a decree of Darius. Now, that decree is actually marked out on that strange object you can see there. It's known as the Steel of Cyrus. It's actually up in the British Museum. And it's a declaration that Cyrus made that he would allow all the captives to return to their homelands. And so, incredibly... To the very day, as I say, 70 years after the, the siege began, or the, the Jerusalem fell in 606 BC, in 537, uh, the servitude of the nation is 70 years of judgment that God had decreed upon them came to an end. But what's interesting is that there was a second period of 70 years, this time not for the people, but for the city itself, for the land. And that begins in 587, that desolations of Jerusalem. And that period of time lasts 70 years and terminates finally in 518 with the decree of Darius when the Jews are finally allowed to rebuild their temple. Very, very significant dates and times. We'll talk about it more as we go through our study. Just to show you how precise the chronology is of all these things. And again, you, this, you can't make this stuff up. It's too precise, the information, the dates, the details you're given. We've already said the first siege occurred uh, in 606 BC. Uh, you see at the top of the screen there. Uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar, the following year, his father dies, he becomes king. Uh, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So we know already, we've said it was the third year of Jehoiakim that that siege took place. Well, we can just plot the years of his reign, again, 11 years, which means his, his reign came to an end in 598 BC. Then we find Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So we follow on when Zedekiah becomes king, and we follow that through, and we find, exactly as per the dates we've already mentioned, the final uh, year of Zedekiah was 587 when he was captured and taken captive to Babylon. Now, also, these are different scriptures working out, but in Jeremiah, we have another statement. Now, in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, which was the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, which served the king of Babylon into Jerusalem and burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the house of Jerusalem, all the houses uh, of the great men burned he with fire. So now we know where Nebuchadnezzar became king. And we should be looking for 19 years. And if you plot this, you find exactly... Now, these are different scriptures by different people, from, some from Kings, some from Jeremiah. Everything fits absolutely perfectly. The chronology of this period of history is so precise, and it's all written and recorded in the Bible, so we can be absolutely confident in the dates of all these things. Just one other quick thing I want to throw in here. 
Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign and reigned three months, ten days in Jerusalem. And he did that was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's from two chronicles. But if we go to Kings, we're told Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign. Now, on the surface, it looks like we have a contradiction. And sadly, many Bible commentators do draw that conclusion. In fact, Carl and Dillich, who are great commentators on many things, say Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he ascended the throne. The eight years of the Chronicles are a slip of the pen. Well, I have a problem with that because we're told that God has preserved his word. And yet here they're saying that there's simply a slip of the pen in the text. Well, my question is, if there is a slip of the pen in the text, how many other slips of the pen are there? How many other mistakes are there that we don't know about or can't trust? It calls into question the whole of Scripture if we adopt that mindset that there's a slip of the pen. Adam Clark, another great commentator I truly respect, makes this comment. Jehoiachin was 18 years old. He is called Jeconiah and Coniah, uh, and he's said to be only eight years of age. But this must be a mistake. Notice what he says. This must be a mistake. For we find that having reigned only three months, he was carried captive to Babylon. And there he had wives. And it's very improbable that a child between eight and nine years of age could have wives. And of such a tender age, it can scarcely be said that as a king, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. The place in Chronicles must be corrupted. All right. So again, doubly, he's saying that there's an error in the text. Now, of course, I have a problem with that also. Now, James and Fawcett and Brown, another group of uh, commentators, uh, they say 18 years old, uh, he began to reign at the age of eight. His father took him into partnership in government. He began to reign alone at 18. So what they try and do is say that, well, he was eight years old and he became co-regent, came co-regent partnership with his father. And so this is what they're saying as a solution. But that doesn't quite fit the details either. So what do we know? Well, Jeconiah was 18 years old when he became king. And he did reign three months and ten days. We've got no doubt of that. And then Nebuchadnezzar came and took him captive to Babylon and so on. He was actually the first king of Judah to come to the throne under a vassal king. In other words, under another authority. Every king of Judah prior to that had been autonomous. They'd had the complete freedom to rule. But now Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were ruling over the whole area. And so it was under that uh, dominion, as it were. Now, so we have this question then. In Chronicles, where it says Jeconiah, oh sorry, Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign. So, how are we to understand this eight years? Well, the key is the word that we have old. Now, in Hebrew, the word is bain, or ben is the, the way it's written, but bain is pronunciation, uh, and literally it means a son. Now, it can be used in regards to somebody's age. So, uh, of a literal figurative relationship, including grandson, subject, or nation. Now, notice how this word can be used. It can be used in regard to being a subject of someone else. Now, it says, effectively, Jehoiachin was eight years a son. Okay, that's how people have translated it. That's why they've got to the conclusion they have. But the, another way, legitimately, to translate it is Jehoiachin was eight years subject, now, that changes everything. If we look at the details we've looked at already, uh, we know that in the third year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar con conquered uh, uh, Jerusalem and so on. He served for three years and then rebelled for five years. So Jehoiachin reigns for three months and 11 days. And if you look at that, when we get to this point, uh, Jehoiachin 
was eight years subject when he began to reign. In other words, for his entire life, at this point, although he's 18 when he comes to the throne, for eight years of that life, he'd been subject to the king of Babylon. There is no contradiction. I hope that's not too confusing. But the point is, never accept when somebody tells you there's an error in the text. The only problem that exists here is one with our understanding. And when we dig into it, we see that there's no contradiction and there is no need to correct the text, which leads us to our conclusion this morning. What do we answer the critics when they tell us that Daniel wasn't written when they say it was written and we can't trust it and so on? Well, there's no other book that is vindicated by history like Daniel is. In 332 BC, Alexander's conquest of Jerusalem Priest Judah showed him references to himself and Daniel and the city was spared. Now, we've already mentioned that, but also in 1889 to 1917, excavations of Nebuchadnezzar's palace uh, and so were made. And they found the banqueting hall. They found the dimensions exactly as recorded and alluded to in the book of Daniel. By the way, that was being rebuilt by Saddam Hussein. The conclusion was that with all of these things, Daniel had to be eyewitnesses to them. And we'll go through over the coming weeks more uh, evidences. There's a Babylonian clay prism that's now in the Istanbul Museum. And it lists a number of individuals which are really significant. It refers to somebody, Hanunu, uh, who was the chief of the royal merchants. And that's simply a variation of Hananiah, or as he becomes known in Babylon, Shadrach. Then we have Mishael Emarduk. Now, the Marduk was the name of their god. But effectively, that is the name of Mishiach, again, one of Daniel's three friends. Then we have the name of Arde Nabu, who was secretary to the crown prince. And that's simply an alternative form of the name Abednego, which is, again, um, um, one of the other three friends of Daniel, uh, Azariah. Uh, so all of these individuals are actually recorded on non-biblical historical documents and uh, artifacts that have been found. Now, two books that thoroughly attest to the historicity of Daniel and its writing at the time the Bible indicates are studies in the book of Daniel. Now, you can get this online. Uh, this is by Professor Robert Dick Wilson. It's an incredible book. goes through just showing that what we have is true. And then I'd encourage you also to look at the authenticity of the book of Daniel by Dr. Bill Cooper. Uh, as you know, Dr. Bill Cooper recently went home to be with the Lord. But the work that he did... Uh, showing the authenticity of that which we have in the scripture uh, was just phenomenal. So I encourage you to look at any of those things. Uh, I just want to read to you a quote from Bill Cooper. He says this, Perhaps the most sensible thing that has ever been said about the critics was said by Sir Robert Anderson, who in 1909, as an accomplished policeman, knew a thing or two about evidence, how evidence works. He states that in any court of law which was trying the case of Daniel, the critic would be considered, at best, a specialist witness. He can supply but a part, and that by no means the most important part, of the necessary evidence. And if a single, well-ascertained fact be inconsistent with his theories, the fact must prevail. Now, of course, we have many facts that completely destroy the arguments of the critics, and we'll look at them as we go through our study in coming weeks. Bill Cooper just concludes and says, unfortunately, the critics have always mistaken their role and presumed to speak as judge and jury. But of course, the ultimate authentication for the book of Daniel is that Jesus quotes Daniel three times and he refers to him as Daniel the prophet. 
Daniel's also quoted in the book of Ezekiel three times and he's classed as being alongside Noah, Job, etc. Okay, a lot of information. Hopefully it's not uh, completely confused you. Uh, obviously all the PowerPoint notes and everything will be online. There'll be detailed study notes I'll send out as well if you want to review this. Uh, just encourage you to read ahead into chapter one. You've got a bit of history of the time, the kind of context of what it was like for Daniel and his friends leaving Jerusalem under this uh, foreign power that was coming in. And we'll pick it up from there if the Lord doesn't return soon. Uh, before next week, we'll pick it up next Sunday. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity just to study these things, to look, Lord, to see the faithfulness already of someone like Daniel and his friends who, despite incredible challenges, didn't give up on you. Recognize, Lord, that you do rule in the kingdoms of men. And Father, we pray that we would take that one fact away with us today, that whatever we are facing, that you are there, you will be with us through it, and you will sustain us because, Lord, you've promised to watch over and to keep us, and that, Lord, you have bought us with a price. So, Father, help us to be faithful to you and to purpose in our hearts to make that decision before the event to be faithful to you. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.